for this last session, I want to begin by talking about October 7th. And many of you may not know that October 7th this year was just not on a Shabbat, but also on a biblical festival, a very important festival. We call it in Hebrew, Shemeni Etzeret, which we can translate it, the eighth day assembly. Shemeni, eighth, and Etzeret. Well, it's a unique word. It is derived from the word Latzor, which means to stop. Now, not much is said about Shemeni Etzeret in the scripture. We see a few verses, for example, in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. And then we also see it mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 8. And there it talks about Joshua, the son of Nun. But what's interesting is that normally when we speak of Joshua, we call his name in Hebrew, Yehoshua. Sometimes he's called Hosea. But there he's called Yeshua, just like the Hebrew way of saying Jesus. And when you look at the rabbinical commentators, they see this holiday, Shemeni Atzeret, as a holiday that is going to be used for a kingdom significance. Now, I've spoken a lot about the kingdom today. And there's a battle going on. Many people in this world do not want the kingdom of God. And furthermore, we see that the enemies of God, they don't want the kingdom of God. And I believe it is very prophetic. I believe it's very significant. that, And you may not have heard this, but Hamas, they sent emails to the leaders of the various communities around Gaza saying, we are going to turn your holiday in. It's also known as Simcha Torah, the day of gladness, the day of rejoicing in the law. They said, we are going to turn this holiday of yours into a day of mourning. And they acted. The Israeli army didn't believe that. And therefore, the people were unprepared. Now, I will say this. You may not know that Egypt sent information to Israel saying, we have intelligence that an attack is being planned. There are girls in the Israeli army. Our daughter was one of them. They're known as a tatspitanit. What is that? It comes from the Hebrew word, which means a lookout. And those that were assigned to Aza or Gaza, they reported back. Things are happening. They were concerned. And Shortly before 6.30 in the morning when the terrorist activity began, Shabbat, which is kind of the, the 
federal law enforcement in Israel and Mossad, the intelligence gathering agency, they had a meeting approximately 2 in the morning. And they notified some of the commanders that an attack was indeed going to happen. But what was the problem? They imagined that this attack would be aimed at one or two communities and might consist of 10 to 15 terrorists. As you know, the estimates are that there was over 3,000 terrorists that attacked over 21 communities around Gaza and even went as far as Sidorot and Ofakim, further on, 30 kilometers into Israel, outside of Gaza. One of the questions that people are asking is, why were so many higher military leaders, captains and such, why were they killed? And the reason is, they were notified in the middle of the night. And instead of gathering other soldiers, they went down there by themselves. And instead of meeting 10 to 15 or 20 terrorists, they met, as I said, well over a few thousand. And we know what took place. But I want you to see that there were spiritual overtones. They, the Muslims, understood the significance of this holiday. Many of them, in fact, the leader of Hamas in Aza, a man by the name of Sinwar, he speaks fluent Hebrew. He was in jail in Israel for well over 10 years. He had what he thought was terminal cancer in Israel, treated him and saved his life, and he readily admits that. Admits that. But he is committed to the destruction of the nation of Israel. Why? Well, I hope you know. Islam does not want the kingdom of God. And what I want to share with you in this last message is that the spirit of the Antichrist is moving in this world. We only have to look at what has happened since October 7th throughout the international media to understand the hatred for the God of Israel and the people that we've talked about that God is going to use in order to bring about the establishment of his kingdom. And there is a satanic plan, and I mean just that, a satanic plan to destroy Israel because the enemy knows something. If Israel does not get right with God, if Israel does not obey certain biblical truths, then the kingdom of God won't be established. Take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Revelation and chapter 17. Now, I would suggest to you that this 17th chapter 
is probably one of the least studied passages in the book of Revelation. And it's not confusing at all. When we look at Revelation chapter 17, we're going to focus in on what's known as the beast. Now, if you read prophecy, the book of Revelation is much easier because John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to use prophetic terms in order to convey the message that Messiah gave to him. The book of Revelation, first and foremost, is the revelation of Messiah. We see that in chapter 1. But what you may not know, in fact, I mentioned the Bible project. Maybe you should go and listen to what they say about the book of Revelation and see if they mention the word throne. Because you are going to be amazed if you read, and I would commend you to do so. Just read the book of Revelation, just 22 chapters. Many of the chapters aren't that long. Read it this week. And underline every time that you come to the word throne, underline it. And see how many times that word throne is mentioned. If you were to ask me, what is the book of Revelation about? It is about the events that have to take place. In order that the throne of God, which is in heaven, that throne is established first in Jerusalem for that millennial kingdom. And then secondly, that the throne of God is going to rule for eternity. And that final expression of the kingdom of God known as the new Jerusalem. God has a plan for the land of Israel, for the city of Jerusalem, and for the new Jerusalem, God's eternal kingdom. Look with me to chapter 17. We see here that this chapter is about, if you look in the middle of verse 1, we see that this is about the judgment of the great harlot that sits upon, that is an expression meaning ruling over many waters. And in the book of Revelation, many waters relate to, we'll see this later on in chapter 17, many waters relate to people. This great harlot, harlotry, prophetically, you study Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, any of the prophets. And when they speak about adultery, more often than not, they're not talking about sexual adultery between a husband and a wife. But rather, they're talking about idolatry. When it speaks of, and we mentioned the 144,000 earlier, about the 144,000, and in Revelation 14, they're called virgins. What does it say after that? They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Their virginity is about their spiritual fidelity. That they are obedient to the truth concerning Messiah. And when it speaks about this great harlot... It's speaking about idolatry. 
that is going to dominate this world in the last days. Now you say idolatry. Well, do you understand what idolatry is all about? People will choose an idol based upon, well, you go into an idol store. I'm not recommending that. But you can do that. Not too long ago, we were in Thailand, full of these places. Full all around. They have these places of idolatry. People come offering food, vegetables, different gifts too. Wood, stone, different things. And it's all about one thing, idolatry. I choose the God that does what I want it to do. It's all about me getting my desires. That initially, and hear that word, hear it carefully. Initially, that is going to be the tool that the Antichrist will use. It's all about us getting what we want. And the tragedy is this. Too much of Christianity is teaching a similar message. That God is there for me. That God is going to fulfill my dreams. He's not interested in your dreams. In fact, he wants your dreams for your life. What you might think is your destiny, it needs to be nailed to the cross. Because your dreams, more often than not, originate with self. God's got something better, something different. So we should not be about self. That's what idolatry is all about. And therefore, we see here there's going to be a judgment of that great harlot that sits or rules over many waters, many people. Verse 2. Which the kings of the earth, they committed adultery with her. And then we have an expression. Now, again, if you read the book of Revelation this week, you will find how many places, not just in this chapter, but throughout the book of Revelation, we have this expression, those who dwell upon the earth. What does it mean? Well, we have two groups in the book of Revelation, those who dwell upon the earth and those who dwell in heaven. And it has nothing to do with where they are physically located. Those who dwell on the earth are those who are committed to this world. Those who dwell in heaven, they are committed to and citizens of the kingdom. So as I look out here, I'm speaking to those who dwell in the heaven. Those who have made Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of their life. That we have a kingdom call upon us. But in verse 2, it speaks about the kings of the earth, those who have committed idolatry with her, this, this harlot, and those who dwell upon the earth. They have become drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, idolatry. It's about self, about my desires, not God's. And then look at verse 3. John is speaking and he says, he lifted me up to, where was he taken? To the desert or the wilderness. 
Now, if you're a good student of the Old Testament, whenever that word, the Hebrew word midbar for wilderness or desert, whenever that word appears, it's all about trusting God, depending upon God. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, in that desert, for one purpose. God wanted to cause them to trust in him. And he showed for those 40 years, he is trustworthy. He is loyal. You can depend upon him. This is what John is admonishing us. He's taken into that wilderness by the Spirit. And he says, I saw a woman sitting upon a beast, a scarlet beast. And this beast, and remember prophetically, a beast is an empire. And here we're talking about the Antichrist empire. He's going to rule over, we see this, Revelation 13. He is going to, the Antichrist, is going to rule his empire over all the world. And it's going to be set upon this empire by this harlot. And notice it says that this beast was full of what? blasphemous names so the antichrist empire that is going to be established and i believe it's not in the distant future let me just ask you a question and it's fine to disagree don't you see changes happening in this world don't you see people leaders of governments that are making decisions that are ridiculous i mean we are confused we and i'll say even though we're israeli citizens obviously we grew up in america we pay attention to america as well and there is such great confusion you have doctors and phds that testify before congress and they can't even define what a woman is they don't even know whether a man can have a child or not. Why? They are, and hear this word, they have been deceived. That's the Antichrist. That's that spirit that's coming into this world, a spirit of deception. And you are going to be deceived when you want what you want. When you are passionate about your desires. When you are interested in your will, and not God's will, you're going to be deceived. So this beast, this empire, was full of blasphemous names. And notice, it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, for the purpose of this study, we are going to emphasize these seven heads. And we're going to be told exactly what these seven heads are. Drop down to verse, verse 4. And the woman, this is this great harlot. The woman was clothed in argamon, that is purple, and crimson, and was decorated with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now, these words that are used here are related to things that were in the temple. 
It is going to be a false holiness that she's going to express. And notice that in her hand was a golden cup full of abominations and the impurity of this fornication. Now, I mentioned something to you in the first lesson. And that is the term purity in Hebrew, tahor. That which is pure, God desires to bless. But that which is tamay, that which is impure or defiled, God rejects. And what we see here is that God is saying that through this idolatry, through this antichrist empire that's going to, to manifest itself, and rule over all the nations of the world. Notice that it is going to be full of abomination, and God will not bless it. Verse, verse 5. And upon her forehead, now, the priest, the high priest had what's called the tzitz, and it was written upon his forehead, holy to the Lord. That is the, the foundation of Israel. What God called Israel, his nation, to be. Holy unto the Lord. But notice what's written here. Upon her forehead was written a name, a mystery name, called Babylon the Great the mother of harlotries and the abominations of the earth. Now again, harlotry, idolatry. It is all what happens when I do it my way. My way leads to impurity. My way leads to that which God sees as an abomination. And we know today, that which God calls an abomination is being embraced and applauded by this Antichrist spirit. Verse 6. I saw the woman drunk, and notice this, drunk from the blood of who? The saints. Now, here's the problem. Now, yes, we can have disagreements about eschatology, we're not all going to agree about the same thing. But what is the biblical basis? And let me just tell you, people get angry about this, really angry about it. Because many people teach, I believe in the rapture, but people teach that the primary purpose of the rapture is so that we escape the persecution of the Antichrist. I see nowhere in the scripture that taught. Nowhere in the scripture that taught. When I look at the scripture, the primary purpose of the rapture is so that we will never, ever, ever experience any of God's wrath. That's a good thing. The scripture says, and let me give you the citation, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. You are not appointed for wrath, but to obtain, to receive. To experience salvation. Salvation is a victorious word. But people believe that the rapture delivers us from the Antichrist. No. No. 
There is no reason to believe such a belief. It says here that this empire, and we're speaking about the Antichrist empire, is going to be drunk from the blood of the saints. And you'll have people say, well, these are, are Israel. It's not believers, but keep reading. From the blood of who? Those who have the testimony of Yeshua. Now, people will say, oh, they got the solution. These are tribulational saints. Well, let's just be real clear about something. The only place, and this is what, I don't want to say it, it, it makes me angry, but it makes me angry. And that is that people will say, oh, the tribulation, where is that taught in the Bible now? We all know that when we speak about the tribulation, most are referring to the final seven years. What's another name for it? Daniel's 70th week. And they'll say, well, in Matthew chapter 24, write these citations down. Don't believe what I say. Read them later on. Matthew 24 and verse 21 says that there's going to be great tribulation. It does not say the great tribulation. Greek is a very precise word. The only phrase, and people will say, well, in Daniel 12, we have that etzerah, a time of tribulation. That's true. We have it in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 as well. But that all relates to who? Israel. But the term is not the great tribulation, it is simply great tribulation. Do you hear the difference? Not the great, but simply great persecution, great trials, great suffering. Well, let me share with you. When we look at the world, there is many, there are many organizations that monitor persecution of believers throughout the world. And guess what? It is increasing. Yes, it is growing at an alarming rate. That shouldn't surprise us. We should be praying about it, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because if you read, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it talks about that there's going to be an increase of persecution and tribulations as we approach the last days. Now, my subject right now is the great tribulation. You know that phrase only appears one time in the scripture, correct? Revelation chapter 7, I believe, verse 14, where it says the great tribulation. Why? The, the, that definite article, the word the, appears. It does not appear in Matthew 24, verse 21. But it does in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. But here's what's interesting. When does the wrath of God begin? See, you hear people all the time. You can just Google the Great Tribulation. And people will tell you over and over. It has to do with the worst time of suffering. And it's related to the final, the final three and a half years. And it's related to God's wrath. Don't, isn't that what you hear? False. False, false. Don't believe me. When does the book 
of Revelation reveals that the wrath of God begins. Well, if you read in chapter 6, beginning with that sixth seal, it tells you there that the wrath of the Lamb, very significant, it's the wrath of the God, but the source of it is Messiah. It is going to be with His coming that the wrath of God is going to be completed with His second coming. But in Revelation chapter 6, that sixth seal only announces, hear that carefully, it only announces the wrath of the Lamb. And then when you get into chapter 7, there's an angel. And he says, hold on. Don't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until two things happen. Until Israel, that first 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7 are sealed. And I would suggest to you, in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, we're speaking about the rapture. For there is a great multitude from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language. Doesn't that sound like the church? That they appear prior to the wrath of God. They appear before the throne of God in white robes and with palm branches in their hand. I hope you know what that means. Because the palm branches are what is taken up during the Feast of Tabernacles as a way of proclaiming trust and dependence upon God through His grace. You have to look at Leviticus 23 and other passages to understand that. But that's how the people get there. You get before the throne of God by trusting in God's provision. That is that gospel, His grace. And then we find that it's in verse 14, he speaks about the great tribulation. Those who, for the sake of testimony in Messiah's name, Messiah's character, they go through that great tribulation. And it's only after that, when we get into chapters 8 and 9, and then in chapter 16, that the wrath of God is announced. And the wrath of God is poured out upon the world, meaning this. And here again, it's okay for us to disagree, but we have to base our thoughts upon Scripture. And the wrath of God does not begin until after the great tribulation, according to the book of Revelation. Did you hear that? Most people deny that, reject that. Because they think rashly, oh, the great tribulation. If it's the great tribulation, it's got to be God's wrath. No, no, no. The reason why it's called the great tribulation is because there's an emphasis by John concerning the disciples who are going to go through the events of Revelation, the whole book of Revelation. What believers suffer in the name of Christ is very dear to God. So he calls that persecution before, hear that, before the wrath of God, the great tribulation. When we go here, this is what we see. Look again at the end of verse 6. She was drunk from the blood of the saints, 
from the blood of those who had the testimony of Yeshua. And when I looked at her, I was amazed. Why? With a great amazement. And he asked me, that angel asked me, why are you amazed? I will tell you the secret of the woman and the beast that carries her. That to her, because beast in this case is feminine, who has the seven heads and the ten horns. Verse Verse 8, the beast which you saw was and is not, but in the future will rise up from the abyss and go to destruction. Have you heard what that said? Do you understand what he just referred to you? The beast that was is not, but in the future it's going to rise up from where? The abyss, where's that? Hell. Its origin is not of God. Its origin is the enemy. He comes up, this empire comes up from hell. What else did we learn? Good news. Why? What's its future? It is going to go to perdition. That is an old word for what? Destruction. So he tells us. There is a satanic, hellish empire that's going to rise up. But don't be concerned because this empire is going to be destroyed. And it says, the ones who, not you and me, but the ones who dwell upon the earth, those who are in bondage to this world and have no relationship with the kingdom, those whose names are not written in the book of life. Now, do you see something? Why are we talking about this empire? And it tells us that there's going to be people who worship it. And who won't? Those whose names are written in the book of life. Now, I understand people say those are those tribulational saints, but I don't see. Help me out if I'm wrong. But I don't see other than the remnant of Israel and those who come to faith through what God does, his faithfulness to Israel. I don't see a great revival of tribulational saints. I don't see that in the scripture anywhere. In fact, when you read about the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, what are they? The trumpet and bowl judgments are the expressions in the book of Revelation concerning God's wrath. Correct? When we look at the trumpet judgments, it's God's wrath, but not its full outpouring, but the number that appears there. And here again, read the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 8 and 9. This judgment of the trumpets, it's God's wrath, but the number that appears over and over is one-third. It's not the complete pouring out. It's only when we get to those bowls or these vials of Revelation chapter 16, that there it says, in these bowls, the wrath of God is complete. 
And when you look at the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, there's something that's consistent. Here again, don't trust me. Read Revelation chapter 9. Read Revelation chapter 16. You know what the word of God says? Despite this wrath, these horrible things of the trumpets and bold judgments, what do the ones do in earth that are alive for this time period? We won't be here for the wrath of God. They will not repent. They will not turn away from their adultery, their murder, their stealing. They will not turn to God. So we don't see during the time of God's wrath, the world going through this great time of revival. Now I listen to a lot of different teachers. I know many that teach about that 144,000, what they call Jewish evangelists that the scripture never does, that is going to bring about the greatest revival known to mankind. It's not in the scripture. It sounds good, but it's not in the scripture. Now, this is not the first time I've shared this, this type of teaching. And I always challenge people. If you find a verse that speaks about the evangelism of the 144,000, send it to me. I will gladly make a video saying I was wrong. Let me tell you, I would much prefer to be wrong. I like the other theology from a personal standpoint. It's better. Why? It's a painless theology. The problem is this. It's not a true theology. We don't get to choose what we want to hear. That's dangerous. There's many people in Paul and Peter talks about those who tickle the ear. We don't want to be in that category. Look at what the scripture says. Drop down to, to the end of verse 8. The beast that was and is not, but in the future will come. Now that's the second time that the beast, what's the beast? The Antichrist empire. I don't think there's any real commentators Bible interpreters that would disagree with that. The beast is the Antichrist empire. And we're told over and over, it was, it's not, but it's coming again. That's what we are, are, are taught. And then he says, look now to verse 9. Now this kind of anchors me, this verse, because it says, here is the mind of understanding that has with it Wisdom. Why does that kind of bother me? He's saying, here's some, if, you, if you have any understanding or wisdom, you'll be able to figure that out. It's not that easy to figure out. He says, here is the mind that has understanding, and with it is wisdom. He says, the seven heads, they are seven mountains. Now, in prophecy... A mountain is a seat of government. It is a governmental authority. So these seven heads are also seven mountains, which the woman, initially, the woman will sit upon. They are also seven, what does your Bible say? Kings. Now, there is no king without a kingdom, biblically speaking. 
So there's seven empires. They are seven governmental authorities. They are seven different kingdoms. And notice what it says concerning these. Five have fallen. Now, you don't have to accept what I'm going to say right now, but if you look at almost any commentator, they will agree. This is not originating with me. I've read it from others, and I simply agree with them. Five of these empires have fallen. Who are they? Well, what the scholars tell us, and of course we're talking about Christian scholars, and there's wide consensus in this understanding, this interpretation. The five that have fallen are, and write this down, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. The fourth one consists of the Medes and the Persians. And the fifth one is simply the Greek Empire, right? That's the standard answer. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the fourth consists of two, the Medes and the Persians. And the fifth is the Greek Empire. And what's interesting is that we're told, and there is one that is, there's one that's current. Who would that be? In the days of John, Rome. So there's seven, and here's where it gets interesting. Now, you don't need to raise your hand, but I want you to answer just in your mind. How many of you think that we are approaching soon the end times? You don't have to answer, just to yourself. I would agree with those who said yes, I would agree with you. But there's implications. When you say something, you have to be able to deliver. If we believe that we are in the end times or approaching it, and there's seven empires. Well, here's the problem. As we keep reading, it says, one is and the other has not yet come. Well, that would be the seventh one, right? Well, maybe that's the final empire, the seventh one. But here's the problem. It says, when it comes, it is necessary for this empire to remain a short while. And then we're told in verse 11, the beast that was and is not is also, what number? Eighth. So if we believe that we are approaching the last days, we have to know who the seventh is. Because if we're close to the end times, how many empires are there in total? Eight. And the seventh one, you have two choices. You can either say, you know, I really don't think we're that close because I don't think the seventh one has come. The Bible says it's going to come, be around for a short time, and then it's going to kind of resurface in the last days. Now, if you say that, that's consistent. So you may have the belief the seventh one has not come. I don't have that belief. 
I believe that all seven have come and we are close to the last one, the Antichrist empire, the eighth one. And I'll tell you who I believe the seventh one was. What are we told? Well, all of these, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they were all friendly to Israel. Is that right? No, that's not right at all. They were persecutors of Israel, all of them at different times, but they were all persecutors of Israel. And the seventh one, we are told it has to be like the seventh before it. It has to be a persecutor. But what's unique is that this empire is only going to be around for what? A short time. Who could that be? Now, I would say this. The worst persecutor of Jewish people ever in history were the Nazis. Were the Nazis. Many more people died by Nazi Germany than the number of people that died by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and such. The Babylonians, they estimate perhaps 40,000 died Others were taken in exile. Perhaps others were killed along the way, whatever, but nowhere close to six million. And I would just suggest this, and I'm going to tell you the reasoning, and you can accept it, reject it, that's fine. But for me, when we look at the shortness of the Nazi empire, but the intensity and the amount of persecution and death that came from it, my thought is that there is prophetic significance in that. Maybe I'm wrong. But I believe that the seventh one, which will also be the eighth, is tied to that same Nazi spirit. Now, does that mean it has to be based in Berlin? No. But what we are told by Daniel, in Daniel chapter 8, one of the most important passages in all the, all the Bible, Daniel chapter 8. There's going to be two empires. The first is going to be an Iranian one. It is going to bring about great instability throughout the world. We're seeing that now, in my opinion. It's going to get worse, much worse. And then, you know who's going to destroy that Iranian empire? The Antichrist. He's going to destroy it. And the world is going to love this false security, this false peace, this false prosperity. The world is going to say, who is like the beast? And they're going to pay allegiance to that beast because it solved the problem of what Daniel calls that ram, that source of instability and fear and hopelessness that the Iranian empire is going to bring about, but won't be successful. They will be destroyed by the Antichrist. And that's why it says here, look carefully. Verse 11, the beast that was and is not is also the eighth and is from the seventh or the seventh. But it too, here's good news, will go into destruction. 
Now, we see something else. And for the sake of time, I'm going to wrap this up. But there's those ten horns, right? Those ten horns, the scripture tells us, are ten kings that have no kingdom up until now, but will for a moment. And what's going to happen? They are going to make war with who? That harlot. Why? Doesn't that seem like a divided house that can't stand? No, not at all. We're told why in Revelation 13. See, the more you study the book of Revelation, you find that the book of Revelation kind of provides information for self interpretation meaning the more you study revelation the more you're going to understand other parts of it and in revelation 13 the antichrist he is going to do something he is going to make a change what is the antichrist spirit initially what i said was that harlot what is it idolatry but the antichrist doesn't want idolatry He wants to be what? Worshipped. And he is going to command all the world to make an image, right? You can read this. Revelation chapter 13, the second half. To make an image to the beast. And that image that you make is going to come alive. And it's going to watch you and see if you worship the beast. And its leader the Antichrist. And if you don't, what happens? You must be put to death. So what can we conclude? Everyone, everyone is going to be demanded to worship. Everyone. The question is, who are you going to worship? You have two options. Either the Antichrist or the true Christ. That's what it comes down to. Everyone is going to be commanded to worship. You're not going to be able to buy or sell unless you pledge allegiance to the Antichrist and worship him. That's what the mark of the beast is about. And what I want you to see is this. It is going to be the Antichrist. Now, so many people teach that the Antichrist is going to come out of Islam. It is not. It is not. Or he is not. Why do I say that? Because the Antichrist is going to do seemingly put an underline under that. He's going to do seemingly good things for Israel. He's going to want a temple to be built. That temple is not going to be pleasing to God. The worship there is not going to be glorifying to God. And ultimately, that temple has the purpose of what's known as the abomination of desolation. We're told in the scripture exactly what the abomination of desolation is. Paul says so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Where the Antichrist is going to exalt himself and oppose anything that is worshipped other than who? Himself. And he is going to sit in the sanctuary. Your Bible probably says temple. It doesn't say temple in Hebrew. It says sanctuary, referring to the Holy of Holies. It's the word naos. 
He is going to demand all people to worship him. That, that harlot is going to be destroyed. Why? It's no longer about idolatry. That's to get you in. The Antichrist is going to try to get Israel to worship him. You know, the question that I get so frequently, and it annoys me, it's this. Don't you think that the Antichrist is Jewish? I say, why, why do you think that the Antichrist is Jewish? And this is what people say. Well, if he wasn't Jewish, Israel wouldn't receive him. Where in the scripture does the scripture say that Israel receives the Antichrist? That time of tribulation for Jacob is immediately after the abomination of desolation. It is because Israel rejects the Antichrist that they become persecuted, the worst time of persecution ever upon the Jewish people at the hands of the Antichrist. See, this is what I don't understand. These are good-meaning people. We know some individuals that have spent, you cannot imagine the money that they have invested and spent in order for believers to assist the Jewish people being persecuted in the last days. What I tell them is that the church is going to be persecuted before the Antichrist turns to Israel. And when the Antichrist turns to Israel, we won't even be here. We won't be here. What we're seeing today, open your eyes. What we're seeing today, in my opinion, is the foundation of that antichrist spirit. It is a spirit of hatred for the plans and the purposes of God. We look at the persecution of the Jewish people and the anti-Semitism. Open your eyes. The antichrist is actually going to become a false friend to Israel. A deliverer to try to woo, to capture the Jewish people to worship him. It's not going to happen. And then the persecution will begin. But for the church, if you were to ask me, and we're going to be closed in two minutes. If you were to ask me, what is the most prophetic verse of scripture that you could offer to the church today? You know what it would be? Take up your cross and follow him. That's what we need to realize. Persecution is rising against the church. Governments are becoming ever more hostile to our faith. This is where we're going. And it's that antichrist spirit that is rising up. And it's only going to be a remnant of true believers that are going to stand because the character of the Antichrist empire, we read it earlier, is what? Blasphemous. And it's going to be the faithful church, true disciples that stand up and say to the Antichrist empire, that's false. That's deceit. That is not of God. That is not good. And when we take a stand, we're going to suffer. But you know what? 
we're called to suffer. Things are going to get worse. Be ready. Don't be surprised. Now, I know this is not a popular message. But I truly believe it's an accurate one. We're seeing today persecution soaring. It's going to get worse. Are you ready to take a stand? A stand for the righteousness of God. It's not by accident that the Antichrist is called the man of what? Lawlessness. He's against the law. The law is not an instrument of righteousness, but it defines what is righteous and what is unrighteous. He hates the law because righteousness glorifies God. He hates the glory of God. My hope is this, that you to be used, you want to live righteously in order that through your life, the glory of God is seen. That's what being a disciple, having a testimony, being a witness of Christ is all about. That people look at you and they see your faithfulness and they give thanks to God who is living and dwelling and moving in your life. Father God, we thank you that your word is true. We pray that we might study for ourselves to show ourselves approved. Not to meet the expectations of others or a denomination or an individual or a church. But that we might study in order to be well-pleasing to you. And to live that sacrificial life that brings you glory and honor. For you are God, and there is no other. And we are grateful to you and your son, who redeemed us with his own blood. To him be the glory for great things he has done, and even greater things he will do, even in our days. In Yeshua's name, amen.